this morning, Romans 8. Let's continue where we left off last week, starting at verse 12. None of us love, none of us like to suffer, amen? We want to be comfortable, happy, without wants and satisfied, but can I tell you something? It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Why? Because we live in a fallen world. Last Sunday, we looked at the internal struggle we each have with indwelling sin, and it is a struggle. I hope you remembered that you have a choice now as a believer in Jesus Christ not to sin, not to yield your life to sin, instead to yield your life in the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life pleasing to God. The reality is, though, many of us are suffering, either from the effects of sin or because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. You suffer. You know, an athlete suffers. They all suffer. As they beat their bodies into submission, as they give up good things to do the best for their training. Why do they do that? They do it for the prize of victory, for winning, for the glory of being called the very best at what they do. The question for us is, why do we endure suffering? Why do we work hard at forsaking sin and following hard after Jesus. There's one verse I want you to hear. If you want to turn to it, we're only going to look at it, but we're going to spend our time in Romans 8. I want you to hear the key concept of the message this morning. So I'm going to tell you what I'm going to say, and I'm going to give you the verse, and then I'm going to talk about it. In Romans 8. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12, I mean, chap, uh, page 1228 there in the Pew Bible. Starting at verse 16. For we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And here's the key verse, verse 17. For this light, momentary affliction. This light, momentary suffering is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There's the message. The suffering we are going through is preparing us for something far, far greater that we can't even fully comprehend. Future glory will bring our suffering into perspective. So now, let's look at Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 12. 
Again, I have studied this passage like I did last week, and I have framed it into another series of questions that I think we often ask ourselves. Now, by way of background, we said last week Romans 6, 7, and 8 explores our union with Christ. Last week, we looked at Paul's testimony of his struggle as a believer with indwelling sin, and we said he groaned. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? He then goes on in chapter 8 to look at all that God has provided him and us to deal with ongoing indwelling sin in our lives, such as he said, there's no condemnation. God no longer condemns us. And the corollary truth is we should not be condemning ourselves either. And now we have a choice not to choose sin. We now have a choice to choose through the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life that is righteous and pleasing to God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit now lives in us. So because God has done everything, everything that we needed to have done, He has done everything, we now have an obligation to respond. Let's look at verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers... We are debtors. We have an obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The first question is, what's our obligation? And our obligation to the flesh, hear this clearly, We don't have one. We are no longer under the obligation of the flesh to do what it tells us to do, what it tempts us to do. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives in us. We can refuse to follow the desires of our sinful flesh, and we are no longer debtors to sin. But what is our obligation to God? We now have an obligation to allow the Holy Spirit to work in and through us so that we become more like Jesus Christ. That's our obligation. We are to live each day in the control and the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice in the text in verse 13, he says, but by the Spirit you put to death. <coughs> Excuse me. That's present tense. And what he is saying, you are putting to death every day, every moment, what the flesh is telling you to do. Daily put it to death. In verses 14 through 17, he answers the question, what are some benefits 
of living in the Holy Spirit. What are some benefits? Starting at verse 14, let me read those for you. But all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption and of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In those four verses, I found four benefits for the Spirit leading us. Number one, a practical, everyday leading from God. Verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit, again, present tense, those who are being led by the Spirit of God. He is with us. He is leading us every day. And God's Spirit is always available to guide us into the right way that God has pre-planned for us. Every day. And so when you get up in the morning, do you say, Okay, Spirit of God. I'm reporting for duty. I am here to do what you want me to do. Guide me today. Make me sensitive to your leading in such a way that I will honor you with my life today. Practical, everyday leading. Verse 15, marvelous verse, fearless intimacy with God. Fearless intimacy with God. He talks in verse 15 about the adoption as sons, and that phrase stresses our legal standing before God. One author says, unlike sin, the Spirit does not enslave us. Sin enslaves, the Spirit does not. The Spirit does not compel or force us to do God's will as slaves of God. Rather, he appeals to us to do so as God's sons. See, I'm not doing this because I'm his slave. I'm doing it because he's my father. At conversion... We each were placed into God's family, now hear this clearly, as mature sons. That's why I don't, I don't correlate children of God with sons of God. Similar concept, but a child has to grow up, has to mature, has to be willing to take on. When I stepped from death to life by the power of the Spirit, I was made a full grown son of God. I don't care what your gender is because a son in this culture had rights. And in this culture, women did not have the same rights. That's why Paul is very careful. You are sons. 
And the moment I step from death to life, I have been given an inheritance, which he has given me part of it through the Spirit living within me. But he says to all of us, just wait, there's more coming. There's more coming. This term, Abba, Father, it's an Aramaic term of endearment. It speaks of informal intimacy and respect. When we became one of his sons, we were given rights. How can I explain that? There are some times that I'm in my office and I'm studying on a passage and my door is shut. And the staff either comes and knocks on the door or leaves me a sticky on my door that when I get done, my family, my children, and my wife have the authority to walk into my closed door any time they need me. That's the difference. We are sons of God. We can say to the creator of the universe, Daddy, Daddy, I need this. I need you. I need to connect with you. That is the blessing of living in the Spirit. The chief right of adoption is intimacy with God. You think about other religions. It's formal. It's cold. Christianity is a relationship. It's more than a religion. Why? Because I now have intimacy with the creator of the universe. The king of kings. The lord of lords. Thirdly, verse 16, assurance of belonging to God. See, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We, we have a family relationship based upon regeneration. We have new life. And the Spirit internally prompts us to remind us Remember, you're one of God's. You're one of His. Fourthly, the benefit of living in the Holy Spirit is a continual reminder of our value before God. Our value? Look at what the verse says. And if children, that if can be translated since, and since children, just said that in verse 16, then heirs. What do you mean, Paul? Heirs of God and fellow heirs, co-heirs with Christ. It says that we are going to share in the glorious inheritance that God is going to have stored away for us. Matter of fact, we're going to be joint heirs. We're going to be co-heirs with Christ himself. He says also, though, that we inherit not just glory in the future, 
but we also inherit sufferings now. We don't like hearing that, right? Christ suffered, we are going to suffer. But Christ will be glorified, we will be glorified. See, there is a price to be identified with Jesus. Verse 17, or verse 18. <coughs> Why do I feel like I'm being punished? I've talked to many of you in my office who have asked me this question. They have gone through a, a, a series of suffering times. And I've had people say, is God mad at me? Can't God make this easier? And Paul says in verse 18, For I consider, I've carefully figured this out, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. See, suffering is a result of the effects of sin, but suffering is also a result of our allegiance to Jesus Christ. The world hated Jesus. The world hates us. And we wonder why people look at us cross-eyed and treat us because we have done nothing wrong to them. But you, you hold the mark of Jesus Christ. You're one of his followers. You stand for truth. You are light. And the world struggles with it. He says here that the future glory is so great that our present sufferings will seem insignificant by comparison. And some of you are saying in your head, but you don't know how much I'm suffering. I don't. But that Scripture says, if you think you are suffering now, then I can't wait to see what you're going to get in glory. Because that is far going to outstrip anything that you have gone through on this earth. You're not being punished. Here's the truth. Suffering leads to glory. Amen? Suffering leads to glory. And we better be ready for something wildly glorious on the other side of this life. I can hardly wait. Verses 19 to 27, there's another question. At least it was in my mind. Why all the groaning around me. Why all the groaning around me? In verses 19 to 22, the creation is groaning. Let me read those verses for you. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him whom subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The creation is groan, groaning. Five truths that come out of those passages. Number one, the groaning of creation, A, is temporary. It's temporary. See, in verse 19, he links the groaning of creation with the future of believers. And when Christ returns, creation will celebrate with us on God's redemption from sin. But until then, it groans. The groaning, groaning of creation, B, is, is a consequence of sin. The creation is in bondage to decay ever since the fall of man. The creation, because of that, is now subject to corruption. The fall of Genesis 3 affects not only man, but all of creation. Thirdly, the groaning of creation is a means to an end. Is a means to an end. One day, creation will be restored to its original state. What it was like before the fall. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And the creation now longs for that new creation. The groaning of creation is universal. It says in verse 22, for the whole creation has been groaning together. All created matter is groaning. Nothing is excluded. And finally, the groaning of creation is not meaningless. It's not meaningless. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The pains of childbirth. I will admit as a man, I do not fully understand the pains of childbirth. I've passed a kidney stone, is that close? And some of the women are shaking their head yes. Something I learned in ministry. Never ask a new mom after the birth of her child if she wants a second one right away. I learned that the hard way. I was green in ministry and I went in and asked the lady that and she gave me the most dirtiest look in a hospital you could ever imagine. I've stopped doing that. I, I will wait about six months because in six months the memories fade. 
The child is now six months old. It is a bundle of joy for most of you. And they love it. And when I say, oh, this is just such, are you thinking of having another one? Well, we've actually been thinking about that recently. We've actually thought, and I'm going, good, good. My timing is okay on this one. See, my, my wife had planned cesarean sections. There was no groaning. I, I won't give them any more details. Or that's, that's enough for that one. But groaning in childbirth leads to new life. Amen? And the creation is saying, when, how long, oh Lord, Verses 23 to 25, believers groan. We groan. Let's groan together. Oh! Did that feel good? No? Maybe you need to add a little more oomph into it. Let's do it one more time. Oh! We groan. Verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemptions of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with patience. We groan because we have experienced, as the text said, the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit resident in us. We have had a foretaste of the glory to come. How many times have you done something and all of a sudden you, you, you are told in your spirit, don't do that. And you stop and you listen to the spirit and you stop and all of a sudden there is blessing on the other end. How many times have you been doing something and you get a little thought in your head? I had one yesterday. Contact this person. Set up an appointment. And I'll do that this morning after the service. That was from the Spirit of God. He has given us a taste of what it's like to be led by the Spirit of God. And we say, bring it on. Do it more. Oh, God, please. We've tasted His work. And in the future, in glory, we will enjoy many more blessings, including, now think about this, living in the very presence of God Himself. Can your mind even wrap itself around that truth? 
but we will. See, our suffering causes us to groan inwardly. God's promises cause us to wait eagerly. We want our resurrected bodies. Amen? Amen. We want them. I'm tired of this body betraying me physically, betraying me to sin, betraying me to sickness, betraying me in limitations that I want to do more to serve God and I can't. Where's my resurrected body? God, please bring it. Hope, hope helps us in our suffering. Hope reminds us that our destiny is celestial, not just here on earth. Creation groans. We groan. But here's the one. The Holy Spirit groans. I had to think about that one for a while. Verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit of God groans on our behalf. It's not just occasionally. Now think about this. How weak are you? Extremely Come on. And if I'm extremely weak, how often does the Spirit have to intercede for me? Constantly. That's right. Constantly. We exhibit constant weakness. We receive continual help from the Spirit. You want to you know how I know you're weak? Would you like one evidence that you're weak? How often do you pray? All of us don't know fully how to pray. We don't know content. We don't know manner. We don't know methods. We don't know it could be the continual. We have become in our prayers selfish, ignorant, and narrow. And the Spirit says, oh, he's weak. Let me, let me help him. Let me pray for this person because they are weak and we all are. But a corollary truth that comes out of verse 26 is he groans with us. Isn't that comforting? 
Remember the old spiritual, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. That's a half-truth. The Spirit knows. The Spirit is groaning within me because I can't put words to what I am fully thinking or needing. And He is deeply groaning with my Spirit to the Heavenly Father. I, that's a mystery. But it gives me great comfort to know that the Spirit is witnessing and working within me to express myself to the Father. The Spirit groans according to the will of God. His prayers are always according to the will of God. But here's the corollary truth. He groans with a purpose. He groans with a purpose. The Holy Spirit is intimate with Jesus and the Father. The Holy Spirit unites our needs and our hearts with Almighty God. Wow. He doesn't just groan, he groans to connect me with God. What does this mean for us? A number of things. I'm limiting what I have here because I just went on and on last night. Number one, God uses our suffering to build Christian character in us, to conform us to Christ, to prepare us for final glory. So my challenge to you is, would you allow suffering to do its work both in us and in others? Why do we try to remove? Now, if there's someone suffering, they need food or something, I can do that. But how often do we keep our children from suffering? But we're trying to protect them. And God's saying, I want to deepen them. God never wastes our suffering and our pain. Never. Because suffering often increases our capacity for service and our capacity for blessing. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is the key to the Christian life. We must learn to yield to Him more and more. We must learn how He works and cooperate with Him. Thirdly, suffering does not negate the fact that a person is a Christian. Just because you're suffering doesn't mean that God does not love you. God may be doing a deep work within your life through the suffering He's taking you through. But can I also say this? Don't suffer needlessly. 
Don't make stupid decisions. Don't yield to sin needlessly. You are bringing suffering upon yourself. Number four, Christ's death and resurrection and the Holy Spirit's residence in us grants us, think about this, unparalleled spiritual intimacy with God. He wants us to approach Him, to come into the throne room of grace. He wants us to crawl up into His lap. I can't fully imagine that. But He says, do this, and then get next to my ear and say, Daddy, here's where I'm at. Here's what I need. Here's where I'm struggling. He longs to spend time with us. And we are now spiritually alive that allows us to do that. The next one, the weaker our spirit, the stronger his support. That should give comfort to all of us. The weaker our spirit, the stronger is his support because his power is made perfect in our weakness. So don't avoid it. Don't make excuses for it. Throw yourself on the throne of grace. And one last one, one little one-liner. The greater the groan, the greater the glory. The greater the groan, the greater the glory. Some of you have gone through things that would turn a person's hair white. Some of you have gone through deep waters. And I don't understand why, but I know God is using it in your life to prepare you for something greater. This momentary light affliction. Oh God, are you, are you serious about those words? Yes. Because it's producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all we can even imagine. So hang in there. Allow suffering to do its work. Let's pray.